Well, it was a cold, blustery day as two men rode their motorcycles along a mountainous road. One of the riders was wearing a loose-fitting jacket. The wind would sweep up under the buttons, and the jacket would flap into his face. Well, to avoid a disaster, he pulled over. He turned his coat around so that the button side was in the back. And yet his precautions were not enough. For both motorcycles, they hit an icy patch. They careened down over the embankment. The first rider died instantly. The rider wearing his coat reversed was unconscious, but he was alive. A rookie cop was the first responder on the scene. When the coroner arrived later, he asked the officer what had happened. He replied, well, when I got there, the first guy was already dead. And by the time I got the head of the other guy straightened around, he was dead too. Oops. <laughs> well, in tonight's chapters, Jesus is going to turn some heads. Indeed, he begins by turning the focus of his disciples. Chapter 9 marks a turning point in the training of Jesus' men. Up until now, his emphasis has been on who he is. He's the Lord of creation. He's the king of God's kingdom. And he's been proving it indeed. He's healed disease. He's ordered demons to flee. He's forgiven sin and fulfilled prophecy. Even the winds and the waves have obeyed him. Twice Jesus has conquered death. In fact, his power is nuclear. He splits the molecules of the fish and the bread and performs a miracle of multiplication. But in Luke chapter 9, Jesus shifts gears. He turns a corner. He goes from teaching his men who he is to now where he's going. You see, the disciples wanted Jesus to campaign for an earthly throne. Their aspirations were political. Instead, Jesus' goals were spiritual. His immediate destination was a crucifixion, not a coronation. It was a rejection, not an election. Jesus came to earth the first time to offer himself a sacrificial lamb for the sin of all mankind. His disciples expected a lion, a conquering king. Jesus is going to teach his disciples that to truly follow him, you have to go where he's going. Makes sense? You have to turn your life in the direction he's headed if you want to follow him. You have to take up your cross with him. You can know who Jesus is, but not truly be his follower. Not until you embrace where he's headed. Well, that's what we learn tonight in Luke chapter 9. Tonight's study opens with Jesus and his disciples on retreat. Matthew tells us they were camping near a small town called Caesarea Philippi, right at the base of Mount Hermon. The town was originally known as Panias, after the Greek nature god Pan. It was situated just below a huge reddish rock wall. There inside a cave, water bubbles up and it turns into a stream. This stream flows southward and joins two other tributaries to form the Jordan River. At Panias, Jesus warns us that following him doesn't always pan out the way we hoped. There's great joy in Jesus, but not without some sacrifice. 
Well, Luke chapter 9, verse 18 reads, And it happened, as he was alone praying, that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? Hey, what's being blogged on the internet? What's the scuttlebutt on the radio talk shows? And so they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah. And others say that one of the older prophets has risen again. Jesus had created quite a bit of speculation. He was being compared to a who's who of Old Testament saints. Some said he was John the Baptist because his message was similar. Repent. Others said Elijah because his methods were similar. Remember, Elijah, he also performed miracles. Matthew, by the way, adds Jeremiah to this list of what the people were saying. Why? Because their mercy was similar. Some labeled him one of the old prophets. They didn't specify who, but it was obvious he carried the authority and the power of the Hebrew prophets of old. Well, verse 20, Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? (laughs) And here's the million-dollar question. Actually, the correct answer to the question is worth more than a million dollars. Your response to this question will determine your your eternity. Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Now, Christ is the English translation of the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah, which means chosen one or anointed one. At King David's coronation, Samuel poured a ram's horn full of olive oil on the king's head. The anointing symbolized the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit promised that a descendant of David would sit on the throne of Israel forever. This ultimate king came to be known as the Anointed One or the Messiah. So whenever you see Christ, it's Jesus the Messiah. Jesus was this eternal king, this Messiah, who would reign over God's eternal kingdom. Thus, Peter's answer to Jesus' question was spot on. Peter, you get an A+. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. How would you answer that question? Hey, it's not who do men say that I am. Who do your parents say that I am? Who does your friends say that I am? Who does your spouse say that I am? That's not the big question. No, Jesus came down and he said to these men, Who do you say that I am? And that becomes the ultimate question for all of us. What do we believe about Jesus? Peter got it right. You're the Christ of God. Now, understand, they know who he is. They've passed this test. They they passed the first semester of their training. But now, the second semester, where is he going? Here's the turning point in his training of the 12. They got his identity down, but now what about his destiny? And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Understand, the disciples had messianic visions of a mighty liberator, a righteous ruler, but a suffering servant? They didn't have a clue. This was one of the reasons the Jews killed Jesus. 
the ministry of Jesus didn't fit their messianic expectations. This is why this second semester is so important. You can know who he is, but have you embraced where he's going? And Jesus doesn't want his disciples to have false expectations. Verse 23, then he said to them, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, to follow Jesus, you have to die to your own expectations and you have to embrace God's will. Even if it's hard, even if it costs you, even if there's suffering involved, and you have to do it day by day. You see, a man on a cross has completely surrendered his will to another. You've heard the term crux, as in the crux of the matter. Did you know a crux is a decision point? It's a point of resolution. The word crux comes from the word crucifixion. For the cross is where we all decide. It's our decision point. Will we pursue our own agenda? Or will we submit to the will of God in the footsteps of Jesus? You see, you can accept Jesus' identity and yet still try to serve him on your own terms. But when you embrace his destiny, the cross... It demands that you surrender, that you surrender your will to his. And then he says, for whoever whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. (laughs) Life is like a wet bar of soap. Squeeze it and what happens? Slips right through your fingertips. Put your life though in God's hands and he'll lather it up. You'll have a great life. Christianity is a long-term investment. There is joy and peace immediately, even in sacrifice and surrender, but often the real reward doesn't come for some time. Verse 25 goes on, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? The French emperor Charlemagne gave orders that when he died, he was to be buried in his royal attire, his crown still on his head, his hand still holding his scepter, sitting still on his magnificent throne. A book of the Gospels was also to be placed in his lap. Well, fast forward about 180 years. In the year 1000 A.D., his tomb was opened. And there sat the king's skeleton in all of its royal trappings, crumpled over, slumped over, There too, though, was that copy of the gospel. And guess what his long, bony finger, guess what verse it was pointing to? This one we just read. What advantage is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed? You can hold on to your life and you'll end up losing it. But you can invest your life in the kingdom of God and you'll reap dividends forever. You see, life is a perishable commodity. Life is like a slab of meat or a gallon of milk. That's what it's like. Hang on to it, and it'll rot. It'll spoil. But eat and drink it, and it turns into energy and muscle. Be selfish with your life, and it spoils. Spend it on God, and it lasts forever. Verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. 
Don't be afraid to stand out for Jesus' sake today. And the Father in heaven won't hesitate to stand up for you in the last day. Jesus says, but I'll tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now the headwaters at Panias flow south. Likewise, Jesus is going to move south. He's going to flow toward Jerusalem and toward the cross. But in order to sustain his disciples for the rigors ahead, Jesus gives them a brief glimpse of his glory. He says, some of you will see the kingdom of God. He's going to tell us when and how. Now, it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Now, this was probably Mount Hermon. This was the snow-capped summit just above Panias. Today, it's the home, by the way, of Israel's only ski resort. One year, on our tour to Israel, we drove all the way to the top of Mount Hermon. It was majestic there. You know, it just seemed to me as if the residue of glory still lingered. Here on this mountaintop, earth met heaven. The physical met the spiritual. Time met eternity. Before Jesus takes his disciples to a gory cross, he shows them his future glory. They're going to see him bloodied and beaten and bruised. It's vital now that they see him in glory. And so on the mountaintop, he gives them a sneak preview of his post-resurrection glory. And so as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. (laughs) Talk about turning some heads. Hey, for 33 years now, the glory of God had been veiled in human flesh. Now suddenly, Jesus lets his magnificence radiate through his humanity. He glows with a divine radioactivity. The brilliance of his godhood burns through the veneer of his manhood. Boy, what Peter, James, and John saw that day, they talked about for the rest of their lives. It made such an impression. In fact, you read about it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Peter recalls this moment on the mountaintop and what an impact it had on his life. Verse 30, and behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Wow, this had to turn some heads as well. Moses represented the law. Elijah spoke of the prophets. Both appeared to testify of Jesus. But rather than identity, his identity, guess what they talk about? His destiny. Again, this is the focus now of Jesus' preparation of his disciples. He's taking them to the cross, and he's teaching them that they must take up their cross and follow him. Peter, James, and John must have eavesdropped in on an amazing conversation. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus talking about his impending sufferings on the cross. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Now Luke gives us this detail. He tells us that the three amigos who were with Jesus almost slept through the whole holy experience. (laughs) Peter sees most of the glory through misty, sleep-filled eyes. If ever there was a moment to just stand there and be speechless, this was it. 
but not Peter. <laughs> they behold the king of the universe in all of his power and in all of his glory and in all of his splendor. <laughs> this would humble most men, but not Peter. You know, it's been said there are two types of people in the world, those who have to say something and those who have something to say. Well, Peter was the former. He was somebody who had to say something. He just had to open his mouth. Well, then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. I like how Luke put that, not even knowing what he said. Jesus, this is so cool. Let's just pitch three tents and stay right here. He had no sense of the preparatory nature of what he had seen. He got caught up in the moment and ignored the mission that was being discussed. Verse 34. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. This was no ordinary weather system, no cold front moving in. The presence of the Father in heaven covered the mountaintop. And then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. The voice rebuked Peter. Basically, he says, Stop talking, Peter, and start listening. This is good advice for us all, isn't it? Could it be? This is why God gave us two ears and only one mouth. He want us to, wanted us to do twice as much listening as talking. Even when we do pray, how often do we spend all of our time telling God rather than listening to God? Well, verse 36, when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Now it happened on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. Now as soon as Jesus and his starstruck men reach base camp, guess what they find? They find a desperate dead who's dealing with a terrible case of demon possession. Notice, they don't even get to level ground before all hell breaks loose. And this is often what happens in the wake of a mountaintop experience. We go on a retreat, we have a glorious weekend, and then all of a sudden we're dealing with a demon-possessed child. Satan hates it when God reveals his majesty and his glory, and he tries to strike back often immediately. Well, the father, he told Jesus, so I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And then Jesus answered and said, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Jesus rebukes his disciples for their lack of faith. Then he rebukes the demon. How often has Jesus gotten frustrated with us, bearing with our doubt, bearing with our fear? And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. I love that. You know, as a dad, I, I can't help but to see this from the dad's point of view. 
I mean, for years, this man has had to watch his son go through these fits of madness. The demon would seize him, would lock him up. He would shake uncontrollably. He would writhe and wiggle on the ground. The boy would fail and fall and flail in pain. The demon would bruise him and then beat him. And there was absolutely nothing that this dead could do about it. He could only watch and weep. You know, I used to think it was taxing parenting babies. (laughs) And then it was difficult parenting teenagers. But by far, the toughest time to be a parent is when your children are grown and they're on their own and you have to sit on the sidelines and you have to watch them go through these bruising kinds of experiences and there's so little that you can do about it. But just imagine the elation when Jesus gave the boy back to his father. Healed, free, healthy, happy now. Luke doesn't tell us, but I'll bet this man became one of Jesus' most devoted followers. Perhaps there's a desperate parrot or two in the crowd tonight. Let me encourage us all to bring our boy to Jesus. And he'll give him back to you. Healed, forgiven, and free. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. Now, Jesus needs his disciples to grasp what he's about to tell them. They've been so caught up in the euphoria of all they've seen. They need to settle down now, and they need to listen carefully. He says, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Instead of it sinking down into their ears, it sailed through one ear and out the other. Jesus' destiny was so far from their expectations, it just didn't compute. Reminds me of the woman who woke up in the middle of the night and found her husband missing from the bed. She searched through the house and found him in the baby's room, standing over the crib. She sort of stood there in the shadows, studied his gaze. It was a mixture of awe and delight and amazement. She thought, my, my husband's such a wonderful man. He's just staring there at the baby, pondering over our little guy, thinking about his future. She crept up behind him and she sort of wrapped her arms around his waist and and whispered, Honey, tell me, what are you thinking? He said, I I just can't believe anybody can make a crib and sell it for only $49.95 like this one. Well, likewise, Jesus had some important truths to convey to his disciples, but sadly... They, they were on a completely different frequency, and it gets worse. You see, these guys aren't just dense. They're proud and they're selfish. Verse 46. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. Can you imagine this? Jesus is headed to the cross, and they're jockeying to be boss. <laughs> and Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. 
and said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. I like this. Having coached Little League baseball for years and years, I've discovered that most kids could care very little about the winning and the losing or who makes all stars. Records and rewards are for the parents, not so much the kids. Usually the kids only care about it because their parents care so much about it. Here Jesus sets the record straight. He says the greatest in the kingdom isn't the little league parent, but it's the little league player. Greatest in the kingdom isn't tied to winning and losing and getting ahead. That's worldly stuff, not kingdom stuff. Kingdom stuff is about playing and serving and being part of God's team. It's about participation, not position. That's what makes you great in the kingdom of God, that you just want to serve and be a part and do what Jesus tells you to do. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Did you hear about the guy who died and went to heaven? He was on the tour and uh, walked by a room and a big sign on the room. It said, do not enter. (laughs) He asked, why can't I enter that room? That's when the angel told him, because the Church of Christ people meet in there and they think they're the only ones up here. Hey, we need to avoid a sectarian spirit that we're the only right ones Now, there are some groups who have wrong doctrine. Don't misunderstand. Not all doctrine is equal. Some groups are headed to hell because of false doctrine. But one group is never the only right church. Understand that. What God is doing in the world is always bigger than any one group or any one church. Now, it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. I mean, Jesus is now locked in. Everything is rolling toward the cross. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Now now understand, the Samaritans... They were a race of half-breeds. They were a combination of Assyrians and Jews. They hated the Jews, and the Jews hated them. So when they heard that Jesus' destination was Jerusalem, they denied him a visa. You're not going to pass through our territory. And this ticked off the disciples. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? This is why these two guys get the nickname Boanerges or Sons of Thunder. These brothers had a temper. But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives but to save them. And they went to another village. Understand this. Jesus not only came to do the will of God, but to do it God's way, in the right spirit. James and John had a quick temper. They wanted to host a barbecue, Elijah style. Call down some fire from heaven. Use the Samaritans as spare ribs. 
They had a concern for Jesus' reputation, did they not? But they had no sense of his spirit, his attitude, his heart. And this is the mistake that we can make. You see, you can represent Jesus. You can't represent Jesus effectively until you first draw near his heart and learn of his intentions. I think much damage has been done over the years under the banner of Christianity by people who went out in Jesus' name yet knew nothing of his nature. You, you can't represent him until you know his heart. As for the Samaritans, Jesus' goal here wasn't revenge. It was redemption. It was salvation. In his commentary on Luke, Bruce Larson, he makes a great observation here. Let me read it to you. He says, the calling down of fire and brimstone still has appeal. Those churches who take a strong stand against all the evils of life are prospering. They are against sin, the devil, alcoholism, pornography, communism. Make your list. People will flock to join the against churches, those with a negative thrust. It's much more difficult to attract a following for a positive program, one for God and for our neighbors. That's too ordinary and unexciting. He's right. You see, it's easier to call down fire from heaven than it is to reach out in love. Condemnation is always easier than compassion. It's hard to look past someone's sin and care for the sinner. It's a lot simpler to just call down fire from heaven and just toast them. Burn them up, Lord. Remember, too, the Samaritan sin. What was it? It was racial prejudice. It was. They rejected Jesus just because he was Jewish. If anybody deserves a little fire from heaven, it's the KKK or the Black Panthers. Hey, bigotry, this is today's unpardonable sin. And yet notice, Jesus shows mercy on a town of racists, no less. To represent Jesus, we need to embrace his manner of spirit. Not just his reputation and his name, but his nature and his compassion. Nobody's outside the reach of God's grace, no matter how ugly their sin. Remember, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Verse 57, now it happened as they journeyed on the road. And on this journey, Jesus is going to encounter here three would-be disciples. These men are going to approach Jesus with some legitimate excuses. And we're going to see Jesus' wise response. First, someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, when, whenever we tour Israel, we stay in four- and five-star hotels. We eat gourmet food. We ride in an air-conditioned coach, but not Jesus. When he toured the land, he roughed it. And yet it wasn't because physical comforts were evil. Jesus never took a vow of poverty. He never advocated a monastic lifestyle. Jesus lived without creature comforts, not because they were wicked. He just didn't need them. They weren't on his radar. It wasn't what he sought. He knew a man's quality of life has nothing to do with stuff. That real life is found in the spiritual, not in the material. Jesus refused to get attached to this world. 
And he's saying to this man, he expects the same of his followers. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now, at first, this seems harsh. Why would Jesus forbid a man from attending his father's funeral? This really wasn't Jesus' concern, nor was it the man's concern. You see, he just wanted to be around for a cut of his dad's inheritance. This man's issue was financial security. He may have heard Jesus' encounter with the first fellow. He's thinking, well, okay, I don't have to get rich following Jesus. Foxes have holes, birds are there. I know I'm not going to get anything out of it, but I won't need it because I'm going to have this inheritance. I'm just going to be able to trust in my inheritance. You see, both men didn't trust Jesus, but for two different reasons. One man was afraid of not having enough. He couldn't trust Jesus for what he needed. The other man's problem was having too much. He didn't need to trust Jesus because he was trusting in his inheritance. Jesus says to both men, you're not fit to follow me. You've got to trust me. Here was a man who would have followed Jesus if he had had a fallback or a contingency or a security blanket. I know a lot of people like this. But Jesus tells him, hey, let your siblings sort out your father's inheritance. Don't worry about what you'll get. You follow me. I'll take care of you. Here's the point. If Jesus is your plan A, then there should be no plan B or C or D. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Here the issue is urgency. Jesus wasn't against families, nor was he against goodbyes. But the Jesus train is leaving the station. And this guy has to decide what's more important, the sentimentalism of kissing mama goodbye or getting on board. And if you want to follow Jesus, you can't drag your feet. You can't always be looking over your shoulder, tying up loose ends, living in the past, worrying about what if. You've got to move. You know, farmers say you can't plow a straight furrow looking backwards. You end up with waves, not rows. You grow crooked looking over your shoulder. Likewise, you can't live for Jesus while living in the past. Past weaknesses will rob you of your hope. Past failures will undermine your faith. Past affections will steal away your passion. Past attractions will subvert your focus. Even past successes will create pride and lull you to sleep. The whole point is not to live in the past. It's to press on now in the present. You see, we should handle the past like we do our rearview mirror. On occasion, a quick glance is okay. In fact, it might even be helpful. But when you focus on the rearview mirror, when you focus on your past, man, you get your eyes off the road ahead and you end up in trouble. A crash is ahead. It's been said, live with your back to the past, your hands to the plow, and your eyes to the future. You see, these three men on the road teach us three issues that can get in the way of following Jesus. Present comforts, future security, and past preoccupations. And you know what the solution is? We need to make Jesus 
our yesterday, our today, and our forever. Chapter 10. Now after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Now Galilee was Jesus' old stomping grounds. But now he's moving south into new territory. So he sends out an advance team. And of course the question arises, why 70 disciples? And here are three possibilities. Moses used 70 judges to help him lead Israel. The Jewish Supreme Court, or the Sanhedrin, consisted of 70 rabbis. Here's the third option. According to Genesis 10, the table of nations, the genealogy there, 70 represented the number of people groups in the world. Now, Jesus chose 12 disciples because he wanted to reach Israel's 12 tribes. Perhaps he chose 70 here because his goal was also to reach the whole world, all of the nations. Some ideas. Why Jesus sent them out two by two is a little clearer. There is safety in numbers. Hey, always go with a friend. And there's double the knowledge, double the wisdom, double the zeal, and double the accountability. It's interesting to me, God didn't even let the animals board the ark on their own. He brought them aboard two by two. Jesus always sends out his disciples in dynamic duos. And then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 2,000 years later, this is still so true. There's a shortage of workers today. We need willing volunteers that will help the church in its mission and in its efforts. And Jesus tells us how to recruit. I'm sure there's value in workshops and in training seminars and even in seminaries. But notice the key to recruitment is what? It's to pray. He says, the harvest is great, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord will send out laborers. Verse 3, go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. This world we live in is a vicious, hostile, dangerous place. We should expect opposition. Wolves will try to eat you alive. That's why you need to be prepared to fight. But you've got to be careful how you fight. We can't harden to our surroundings. We can't become like our enemy. While we fight, we have to maintain our gentleness, our love for others. We combat hatred with love. We return evil with good. Rather than Rambos, Christians ought to be Lambos. He says, carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. Now, there are times when careful planning and preparation are needed, but this mission was born out of a sense of urgency. Jesus knew it wasn't going to last long. There was no need to carry a lot of baggage. They needed to travel light. And then he also says, greet no one along the road. In other words, these 70 were not to get caught up in cumbersome conversations. Oriental greetings usually lasted forever. In the Orient, when you greet someone, you know, you could end up bowing 10 times, could end up with uh, 30 minutes of obligatory chit-chat, 
Uh, they, they took seriously their greetings and sometimes too much so. Jesus is saying, hey, just avoid getting bogged down. Just don't greet someone as you pass them along the way. You're on a mission. Just do it. Don't get distracted. But whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. Now, the expression son of was a way of defining someone's nature. We said earlier, James and John were nicknamed sons of thunder. That was was because they were quick-tempered. They were like thunder. Jesus called the stubborn Pharisees sons of disobedience. That was their nature, to disobey and to to be stiff-necked toward God. Here, a son of peace means what? A peaceful person. He says, find a peaceful person and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. I mean, don't visit the, all the homes of all the believers in the community looking for the best deal. Who's got the softest bed or the nicest refreshments? Just be content and grateful wherever you happen to land. It's, it's interesting. Jesus makes two statements here that I think sort of balance each other out. The, the pastor should be content with his pay, not preoccupied with provisions. But neither should the pastor feel guilty about being paid or being paid too much. Why? Because a laborer is worthy of his wages. He says, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Bodily healing was and still is a sign of God's power. When God's kingdom comes, often physical healings result. I I like that. Eat such things as are set before you. That's not really a problem for us here. But when you go on a mission trip to Haiti, that that becomes a serious verse. (laughs) You know, don't insult your host. Be, Be kind, be gracious. Whatever they put before you, take it and eat it. I followed that command to a point. (laughs) But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of the city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. You know, rejection produces two reactions. It can produce feelings of failure or desires for revenge. And and Jesus is saying we need to resist both. You see, a laborer for God has to learn to deal with rejection. And he tells us how here. We need to remember that all we can do is provide people an opportunity. You, You can bring the horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. All we can do is provide an opportunity. And after we do, Jesus says, don't waste your time where you're not wanted. You know, I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases verses 10 and 11. He puts it this way. When you enter a town and are not received, go out in the street and say, the only thing we got from you is the dirt on our feet and we're giving it back. Did you have any idea that God's kingdom was right on your doorstep? I like that. Verse 12. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Now, notice here, the severity of a judgment is measured by the degree of opportunity. No one preached Jesus in Sodom. 
The city was judged for pride and homosexuality and greediness. Far worse is the sin of unbelief. Cities that reject Jesus will be sentenced to a hotter spot than Sodom. They had greater opportunity. He says, woe to Chorazin, woe to Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Tyre and Sidon were Phoenician cities. They were right up the coast. Mark 7, to my knowledge, is the only time Jesus visited this area. Just once. Whereas Jesus spent almost all of his time, most of his ministry, between these three cities he mentions. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Notice they're up at the top. Right up in the top of the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. Oftentimes, Bible scholars call this region the Gospel Triangle. Those three little cities all situated right there close by in a triangular shape. This is where Jesus did most of his work. On our trips to Israel, I love to visit Chorazin. Or Chorazin, depending on how you pronounce it. It's a beautiful site. The city was built on a hill just north of the Sea of Galilee. It has a panoramic view. You turn and look south, you see the whole Sea of Galilee. You turn and look north, you see the, the mountains of Lebanon and Mount Hermon in the distance. It has a perfect climate, fertile fields. It's set right next to a prosperous trade route. This city had all the advantages. Jesus visited here. He did miracles here. But with privilege comes responsibility. And today you go there and all it is is charred ruins. But that's the point. It's charred ruins because of its rejection of Jesus. Too much is given, much is required. Verse 15, and you, Capernaum. And here was Jesus' headquarters while in the Galilee, Capernaum. Probably twice as many of Jesus' miracles were done in Capernaum than in all the other places combined. This was a town of such great advantage. He says, in you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven. This is the city that was exalted to heaven. You will be thrust down to Hades. And why? Because of her unbelief. Unless we turn up our nose at Capernaum for their unbelief, we need to take heed. For we too are a privileged bunch, aren't we? What have we done with our opportunity? In verse 16, Jesus tells his disciples, He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. To reject the messenger is to reject the one who sent him. Beware. And at this point, the 70 head out on their mission to pave the way for Jesus. We're going to get their report of what happened next time. So, Father, we thank you for your word. and Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us tonight. Lord, we pray that you'll continue to bless us as we read, as we grow, as we study, as we continue journeying with Jesus. We thank you for the wonderful gospel accounts that you've given us. And, Lord, help us to get to know you as we read. You're the same today as you were then. Your intentions haven't changed. Your lessons are the same. 
Help us, Lord, to be disciples like Peter and James and John and to take advantage of these lessons, the things they learn. May we learn them as well so that we can follow you and take up our cross daily and be your disciple. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.